I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the vision of the United States of Europe was born out of the ashes of World War II. But as memories got hazy, the vision got lost. America has all the founding fathers, the Hamiltons, all of those. In Europe, no one really knows quite who created a modern Europe. We look at the forces threatening to pull this newly invented single entity apart. The political project was always built on top of the economic project. The weakness is the fact that no one really bothered to ask the people if this was a good idea. Then, think the pace of our modern world is fast and confusing. You're not the first. You see people throughout history talking about the acceleration of life and culture, uh, that life is speeding up. You can trace this back all the way to the Roman Empire. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1946, Winston Churchill settled in for a night of poker. He'd been playing the game for more than 40 years, and he wasn't shy about letting people know he was good at it. This particular game was played on a train, and his opponents were President Harry Truman and his staff. Churchill, unfortunately, got creamed, and he lost a ton of money. So much so that when he left the room for a moment, Truman told his folks to ease up. It was a rough night. And it came during a rough period for Churchill. He had been an inspirational leader during World War II, but in 1945, Britain cast him and his party out of leadership. Meanwhile, the world was changing in ways that concerned him. The Soviet Union was amassing power, and Europe was struggling through a painful recovery after widespread bombing, huge death tolls, and economic ruin. There was, however, what Churchill saw as a solution. We must build a kind of United States of Europe. In this way only will hundreds of millions of toilers be able to regain the simple joys and hopes which make life worth living. This idea of a kind of single united Europe was invented after the war. Even though the countries involved had, in many cases, been at each other's throats for hundreds of years, the new idea was embraced by lots of rich, powerful folks. And to be fair, it still is. I've been to any number of speeches and presentations over the years in Brussels and Frankfurt and Berlin, where they point out that, you know, if you look at Europe as a whole, in many ways, it's actually bigger than the U.S. as a single market. That's Gillian Tett, the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times. The problem, of course, is that, you know, it's one thing to say, yes, we'd like to be the United States of Europe, or at least punch above our weight on the world stage. Um, To do that, though, you need to have clear-cut decision-making and a clear mythology, founding father mythology, and a clear vision, which is clearly not the case. The most obvious reflection of that lack of vision is Britain's contentious struggle to get out of the European Union and the British government's seeming inability to manage a huge mess of competing desires. Fortunately, Tet says, in a continent where countries are ticked off at one another and no one ever seems happy with the deals they negotiate, there's been a recent and rare feeling of unity. The arrival of Donald Trump has so horrified most Europeans that it's actually galvanized to unite them in opposition to a degree. So there's that. But still you have to ask, and we're going to, whoever cooked up this idea that Europe should be a single entity who thought, 
hey, let's invent a new currency. And as Europe tries to recreate itself, how are its decisions changing the world? Mark Blythe, a professor of international economics at Brown University, says, if you go back to the beginning, the very beginning, you will find an unlikely player, America. And we weren't just present at the creation of this new Europe. We helped create it. Why? Well, if you had to sum it up in one word, Germany. So the original foundation was called the European Coal and Steel Community. And the basic idea here was originally an American idea, which was you can't kind of tell the Germans not to be an industrial power. Right at the end of World War II, Hmm. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau had this idea of pastorializing Germany. Basically, you can stay farmers, but you can't do anything else because you're too much trouble. And of course, that was ridiculous. But what they wanted to do is to make sure that the weapons of warfare, particularly heavy metals, coal, steel, the stuff you need for tanks and causing trouble, was in a sense spread out amongst the Europeans themselves. So this took a long time. It didn't begin as a large political Mm. project. It was very much small steps to do with security. And then from security, it went into building essentially a customs union to lower tariff barriers and trade barriers and to get trade going amongst these Mm. economies so that the real recovery could begin. And in that regard, it was remarkably successful. Hmm. Jillian, um, do, do you think that as these steps, kind of how, how Mark lays out, as these steps went little by little towards this more this vision of like one Europe, um, do you think in some ways the elites were out of touch with like ordinary Europeans in this project? Well, I think one of the biggest problems with the whole Eurozone project can be captured if you pick up a Euro note, a Euro bank note. Hmm. Because if you look at the backside of a Euro note, what you have are pictures of windows and pillars and buildings um, rather than faces. It's almost unique in the world that you have a currency or bank note with no faces on. And the reason for that is that when the European leaders were trying to create um, the Euro zone banknotes, they didn't really have any clear-cut figures or faces who had basically been part of the founding mythology. I mean, America has all the founding fathers, the Hamiltons, all of those. In Europe, no one really knows quite who created a modern Europe. And what's even worse is because it's a consensus-driven um, system, they couldn't even agree on any buildings or windows or arches to use on the banknotes. So you have imaginary buildings and arches and windows to not offend anybody. And to me, as a former anthropologist who trained in anthropology before I became a journalist, this lack of any clear-cut founding mythology to unify the continent, the lack of people who or faces from history that ordinary people to look to is part of the core problem today. Mark, you were talking about how the original idea here was, hey, Germany, you cannot be quite the industrial power that you once were. Uh, So here's a new idea. You'll be part of a unified Europe. Did this plan, without like that benefit of a common heritage, did it in some ways slip under the radar? Because, like I said, it kind of came in small steps. Yes, but there's also something else going on, which Gillian's quite right about there's no founding fathers. But what mm. there were was a collecting a collection of, let's say, founding fatherly midwives around the 1970s and 1980s. When mm-hmm. they passed from the scene, the next generation of leaders that came up, Schroeder, who was the German chancellor, Tony Blair, they just didn't care for the project in the same way. And a lot of that had to do was they were not the World War II generation. 
Right? The people that pushed it forward in the 80s, they remembered the war. That's why they thought yeah. the European project was important. By the time you get to the 1990s, you have a new generation of politicians that were not part of that post-war generation. And for them, the project really slipped back to sort of the second most important thing every day rather than the first most important thing. Yeah, I'd say to me, the great tragedy of what's happened in the European Union in the last five years is that a project which was really created in reaction to war and to avoid another war and with the hope of reducing hostilities between different nations has in the last five to ten years ended up actually exacerbating those tensions and hostilities. And to my mind, um, it's really came to a head around the Greek crisis because um, in an ideal world, the most intelligent way to cope with the fact that Greece was plunging into recession would have been to essentially you know, I sometimes joke, create a gigantic German-funded club med holiday camp inside Greece. (laughs) And that way you could have used public money in Germany to actually pay German pensioners to go on holiday in Greece. Mm. Much the same way, frankly, that Florida attracts snowbirds in winter who come down from the industrial parts of the Midwest um, and you get the kind of transfers you need across economic borders. Of course, that never happened. Um, And in fact, what's ended up happening is that Germans and Greeks are more at odds with each other than they've ever been in recent history, Mm. um, which is a tragedy. Well, Gillian, I mean, when you talk about, you know, people really hoping after World War II and thinking just this can never happen again, we've got to sort of knit these groups of people together. um, Was that ignoring hundreds of years of history in which the Germans and the French were fighting in which the French and the English were fighting. Like, was it saying ignore things that um, in some ways, you know, you were talking about anthropology before and founding myths were like, like foundational to the way that people thought about themselves, maybe in opposition to other groups of people? Well, people always define themselves in opposition to other people and people are always tribal in the sense of having an identity. But it's entirely possible to create a group identity that transcends um, local ethnic identities. It's entirely possible for identities to change quite radically over time. I mean, just look at Switzerland, which has, you know, a whole mishmash of different identities. And yet they haven't been trying to kill each other for the last um, few hundred years. And in fact, Swiss are pretty coordinated. The problem, unfortunately, is that the economic incentives within the European Union system in the last few years have switched from putting everybody on the same page and aligned to a situation where they're not aligned. And as you've had those economic incentives misaligned, economic pressures come up as a result of the crisis. And plus the rise of populism right across the Western world, it's created a very nasty cocktail where nationalism is now the order of the day and populism rather than any sense of pan-continental integration. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about that a little bit in sort of... the we think about populism here in the U.S. You know, people were sort of very focused on what's happening here, and there's a lot happening here, so that's not surprising. Um, but you know, do you want to talk a little bit about how we're a piece? The U.S. is a piece in something that really, indeed, is going on in Europe and is affecting this European project. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the phrase that I like for this is global Trumpism. So essentially, a simple way to think about this is back in 2008, when we had the financial crisis, the assets and incomes of the top 20% of all of these rich countries was effectively bailed out by the government and reinsured by the taxpayer. In many countries, particularly in southern Europe, where that crisis became acute, 
That was then accompanied by rather savage cuts to public expenditure. Transfers became conditional. The finger-pointing of northern saints and southern sinners, the virtuous Germans and the spendthrift Spaniards became the order of the day. And what was very much what Gillian was talking about, this kind of coming together of Europe, this polyglot identity of Europeanness, was absolutely cast against national stereotypes. And once you let that stuff out of the box, it's very hard to put it back in. So what's happened throughout Europe is very similar to what's happened in America, even if it has its own particular cadence because of what happened in the Euro crisis. But essentially, when you've presided over the largest increase in, in, for example, economic inequality in, in modern history, you have a financial crisis that basically bails out top income earners. And then you put this in um, nationalistic terms, you're going to get a reaction. And that reaction mm-hmm. is a faith, a loss of faith in the mainstream political classes that have been governing Europe and have been the drivers of the European project. So Europe itself becomes the target. It becomes the football in this new nationalist competition. Hmm. And maybe both of you can talk about this, but, you know, just as we've seen here, concern about immigration and rising concerns, and certainly the current president embodies that in in a a clear way, um, that's also not limited to the U.S. And You know, part of this issue of like bringing together the different peoples of Europe is people are concerned about people who are not them and immigrants and the ease of immigration. Um, Mark, do you want to start on that? And then and then Jillian? Sure. I mean. An interesting example of this is uh, what happened in Sweden recently. So they have, the, they have their own sort of nationalist populist party, the Swedish Democrats, and they came very close to becoming the majority party in the Swedish parliament. Now, was this about immigration? Well, yes, but it's not as if there was a sudden spike in immigration concerns in Sweden, if you look at the data on public opinion. Rather, what people were reacting to was a kind of elite consensus amongst the Swedish governing classes that if anyone questions anything about immigration, you're a racist. So you just can't talk about this. And by pushing this off the agenda and refusing to engage in 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 any debate about it at all, it kind of inspired this nationalist backlash. And I think that's part of what's going on, that there are certain, there's a policy consensus in many areas, which has emerged across the rich countries of the world over the past 20 years, where certain things are just not spoken about. And immigration became one of those things. Therefore, in a time of economic and social stress, it becomes politicized and it gets a particular cadence and becomes particularly important in that moment. Jillian, hmm. it seems like, you know, to go back to your your discussion about founding ideas, you know, I, I think of um, a, a minority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, saying that we sort of want to be known by the Statue of Liberty rather than Trump's wall. And part of, a, of inventing Europe, inventing a single Europe is figuring out, OK, well, who's in Europe? And who isn't? Who is European and who really doesn't qualify? Well, you've absolutely put your finger on the central problem, which is that because there hasn't been a founding mythology, because there's never been a single vicious fight to unify Europe or to define the borders of Europe, um, because you've never had, frankly, the Civil War or any of the American history, the boundaries of Europe have never been clearly defined. Um, During the Cold War, they were essentially defined by the Iron Curtain, but that's obviously changed radically now. And one of the essential problems is that, you know, the US might talk about immigration as a big problem and talk 
about the Hispanic um, immigration. Um, but that's been a very slow burn issue that's you know built up over a number of years um, and is part of the fabric of America. What's happened in the last three, four years with the immigration wave from North Africa and from Syria has really come with a sudden shock. And when Angela Merkel said effectively that the doors were open, she was reflecting the liberal knee-jerk reaction of most European leaders post-World War II, which is to act as a beacon for liberal values and inclusion. Um, but the sheer magnitude and speed at which the immigration crisis has exploded has really blown apart much of that liberal consensus. Mark, what, what role, if any, I, this is hubristic, but what role are we, the U.S., playing in terms of uh, you know, Europe thinking about who they are and who they need to be? Well, as Gillian said earlier, we always define ourselves in opposition to someone else. And having elected Trump, you've given Europeans a wonderful figure to rally against and say, we are absolutely (laughs) not that, which, of course, is nonsense because they have their own populists, many of whom are just, you know, as Trumpish as Trump is. So, uh, again, that's not really true. Um, The United States doesn't really play a role in Europe beyond hectoring. I mean, we're quite right to do this. This goes to Gillian's point. Um, about foreign policy, for example, is they have no military capacity. They've been free riding off of the United States forever. Everything that Trump says about the 2% target for defense spending in NATO, etc., is essentially true and correct. Recently, there's been uh, a very heavy snowfall in Europe. And what that's revealed is that uh, the German army, for example, doesn't really have the equipment to deal with heavy snow. So if you're worried about a revanche of Russia coming after you and you can't really deal with the snowfall, you've definitely got some capacity problems. And uh, that's what Trump is exposing. So in a sense, as a figure, he's a polarizing figure, Mm. which helps to unify. But on the other hand, what he's doing is pointing out some very real weaknesses in European defense structures, which, you know, they should be more serious about. We're going to pause for a minute here and come back and talk more with Mark Blythe from Brown and Gillian Tett from the Financial Times about the invention of one Europe, what that means for America, how it's intertwined with the spread of populism, and most importantly, I think, why the EU is like a song by the Eagles. In the meantime, if you want to read more about Winston Churchill's terrible night of poker that I talked about at the beginning, we've got the story for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And in what has got to be one of history's great lines, during that game, when Churchill stepped out of the room for a minute, one of Truman's aides told the president, if you want us to play our best poker for the nation's honor, we'll have this guy's pants before the evening is over. Fortunately, the president didn't let that happen. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Carol Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. What are we going to do? We got the Brexit Sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And that's not just true in a chemistry lab or a biology lab. It's true in political labs, too. After World War II, America was out in front insisting Germany could not be allowed to become a great industrial power again. There were just too many risks to that. And what was cooked up in the years after the war was a little project that we like to call the European Union. Sure, you were working with countries that had been killing each other's citizens for centuries, but why not? And then, as if creating a new union wasn't enough experimentation, the 1990s brought a new invention, a single currency. 
Greece and Germany should not be in the same currency union if they don't have some centralized political making process. Julian Teth, the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times, says potentially good ideas about uniting the continent have not been followed up by particularly good political dealing. And then there's this. Welcome to the Hotel California. So there's an interesting kind of what I call the Hotel California problem with the euro. That's Mark Blythe, the professor of international economics at Brown University, highlighting a wicked puzzle that, at its end, often distills into a nationalist, populist brew. Because once you check in, you can't check out. And here's why. So you've been using the euro for 20 years. You don't have a printing press. Let's say you're Italy. You've got bad banks. You've got zombie firms. You're not growing. You've got very high youth unemployment. And let's say there's another financial crisis, and that really threatens the Italian economy in fundamental ways. Well, you can't bill your own banks. You can't print money. You're completely dependent on a currency that you don't control. Now, that means you've got a very serious structural problem if there's a big shock. But over the more normal times as well, it creates a very big problem politically. And this is exemplified by Greece and Italy and other southern countries. You can vote for whatever government you want, but you're really going to have whatever policies the Germans and the secure parts of Europe want to have because you have no autonomy. And if you try and get out of the euro, Hmm. all of your savings are denominated in euros. If you try and have new lira, you know that new lira is going to trade substantially cheaper than the euro. Everybody will try and open German bank accounts holding euros. It just creates an enormous economic mess. So you've got a problem because democracy is meant to give you choice, including Hmm. over economics. But you can vote for populists, but they'll behave just like the guys you voted before because you don't really have any real control. And that's the thing that they didn't foresee when the euro came in, was how it's going to disable politics on a national level. Hmm. Um, Gillian, when you look back at at the Brexit vote a couple years back, two and a half years, I think now, and then you look ahead, um, do do you think you know what that vote was about? And do you think... What do you do you think it's a good idea would be in in Britain's interest to stay in the European Union? Well, I thought that voting for Brexit was madness. Um, I mean, the part of the problem is that because I have an international life and because I'm professional mm-hmm. and because I've, you know, done pretty well in recent years, you know, I am exactly the kind of person who a large part of the population was protesting against. Um, but I thought the vote was madness. After the vote, I went back to the UK and spent a lot of time talking to my friends and family who had voted for Brexit to try and understand what the issues were. Okay. And, you know, was forced to go into quite a process of, you know, reflection and thinking about, you know, how countries and elites had become disaggregated. Since then, though, um, I would welcome Brexit if it was used by the UK as a chance to define a new identity and to actually create a positive agenda for trade, for a self-confident vision of how the UK could work in the future. In fact, that hasn't happened at all. It's been a very negative process. And Brexit's defined by what it's against rather than what it's for right now. And that's tragic. Mark, when you look back, do you feel like you know what that vote was about? And what do you think, you know, should happen going forward? Well, a very simple way to think about Brexit is this. A bunch of nationalist Tories in the Conservative Party decided to leave the world's largest free trade zone so that they could have better free trade agreements. 
just stop there. It literally makes no sense. This wasn't really about the EU. It was, as Gillian said, this was an opportunity for voice to give a frustrated population that had been through 10 years of hardship a chance to tell their ruling elites exactly what they thought of them. And what the Remain campaign was, was mm-hmm. the entire British ruling classes coming together arm in arm to tell everyone what was in their interests in the most patronizing way possible. Mm-hmm. And the public said, you know what, if you all want this, you're not going to get it. That's to me what Brexit was really about. Sounds like a magic formula. I like to call it schadenfreude politics, to use a good German word. <laughs> um, so let's look at... I. I'm interested in what both of you think of this. When you look out, not in the next few months, but in the next few years, and you think about this project that started after World War II and it was going to invent this new community and this new currency, ultimately, um, what's going to happen to this community? Gillian, do you want to start? Well, I think anyone who dares to take make predictions with great confidence right now um, about the next 10 years risk looking as almost as foolish as anyone who dare to predict what would happen with Donald Trump or Brexit. I mean, the problem is that we are in a very new political dynamic mm-hmm. when populism, patriotism or nationalism and protectionism is rising. Um, what I hope is that Europe doesn't just muddle through, but actually is forced to make a clear-cut statement of its vision and to bring the economics and the politics closer into alignment so you really can build a continent that is vibrant and functioning. The other thing is that I used to work in Brussels, and I can tell you the bureaucracy in Brussels makes Washington look positively rational half the time. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That that is a statement for the ages, right there. Well, maybe it's a, maybe it's, they're both pretty low bars, but you know this gigantic bureaucratic machine is just hideous, um, and that's exactly why the Brexit vote happened. It's why many European citizens feel so out of touch. So then, urgently needs to be a way to inject much more genuine democratic accountability and transparency into the process to make it survive in the future. Hmm. Mark, what do you see? Well, I think there's a kind of glasses half full, glasses half empty problem here. So if you look at opinion polls, despite all it's been through, the euro is still popular. In pretty much all countries, a majority of people, in some cases a large majority, think the euro is a good thing and they're quite happy with it. And even though there's a rise of populist sentiment right across the continent, uh, it's mainly the centre-left parties which have been collapsing, and they've been in trouble for a long time, way before populism and before this stuff, even the financial crisis. So there's a way in which there's a surge of nationalism, but there's also a surge to a certain point. You know, they're not taking 50% of the vote. They're not changing everything. So, again, glasses half full, glasses half empty. For many Europeans, the euro works. For many Europeans, the Europe that has been built is still a positive and attractive vision, particularly in comparison to a nationalist alternative, particularly if the United States is seen as the other that this is reflected against. So it's not all doom and gloom by any means. I mean, it's definitely the system has taken a good beating over the past 10 years. And exactly what Gillian says, there needs to be some real recalibration of a effective voice in democracy for European peoples. And they really need to do things about the scandal of European uh, mass unemployment amongst young people, particularly in Southern Europe. But these are tractable problems. These can be addressed. And if they are, Europe will still be here. Mark Blythe is professor of international economics at Brown University. And Gillian Tett is the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times. 
thanks so much to both of you. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, and I hope we're not too gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> website, we've got a fascinating article from Politico, which has a different take on Europe's lack of military spending. It's something that President Trump mentions a lot and that Mark Blythe referred to. But this article argues Europe being dependent on the American military, that's not a bug in the system. It is the system that America helped design. We've got the piece for you at our website, innovationhub.org. talking so far in the show about a messy European marriage. So for a change of pace, here's the story of a messy European divorce. And two things to keep in mind. First, divorces among people with money are always more complicated. And second, the man who wanted this divorce was in a particular hurry to get all his paperwork squared away. The powerful have always been trying to exert their priority of time over other people, uh, and other people have had to shape their own times around the powerful and influential within a society. Jason Farman is a media studies scholar at the University of Maryland, and he investigates a phenomenon that has changed a lot over the years, something I doubt you think much about, except when you're ticked off about how slowly YouTube is loading. And that something is the act of waiting, which Henry VIII, the wealthy fellow who wanted the divorce, wasn't too good at. So he has uh, a group of very powerful people write a letter to the Pope asking for dispensation. Uh, There are, I think, about 80 people who sign this document. They all attach their seals to it, marking that they are important people. They send the letter to the Pope, and the Pope decides to wait. He decides to not respond to the letter. He's exercising his own power here by saying, I'm not going to respond to uh, this request. And Henry VIII decides, I'm too powerful to wait. Waiting, Farman says, has always been a function of technology. Once that technology was no more than a horse and carriage, then messages started to move faster on steamships and railroads and through pneumatic tubes and telephone lines, and then email and texts. People complain, we've become a society that doesn't want to wait for anything. But Farman, the author of Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World, says that people have always worried about wait times, no matter how much technology has progressed. Almost 300 years after Henry divorced his wife, the British fought a major battle against the Americans. Thousands of people died. It was called the Battle of New Orleans. But the thing was, the war was over. It had been for two weeks. The folks in charge had decided to head into battle while still waiting for word from Europe where a peace treaty had been signed. You see this throughout history, especially in this moment of time in American history when a typical letter might take 40 days to travel down the East Coast uh, of the United States. So people were used to waiting for correspondence, uh, and it really shaped the rhythms of life. All of our lives are impacted, sometimes profoundly, by the act of waiting. For those who died in the Battle of New Orleans, the wait couldn't have been much more consequential. But we're always at the mercy of how fast information can get to us. And one big turning point in that story is a lonely, humble invention, the postage stamp. 
So you see that um, people prior to this era, prior to the introduction of uh, postage stamps in the United States, would send a letter on a very special occasion. Uh, it cost a lot. It was often like a collect call uh, where you would write the letter, address it, and then the person on the receiving end would pay postage on it. So you were really unsure about how much that would cost uh, that person. And it was you didn't know if that was a burden at the time for the person. So right. Right. You, when the stamps were introduced, it allowed people a cheap and standardized way to keep in touch with each other. So this shifted the perception of letter writing. So the speed of delivery increased alongside an inexpensive and standardized cost, which meant that Hmm. more and more people were writing. And by the Civil War, they were writing um, just millions and millions of letters uh, back home as you had all of these soldiers moving around the country trying to keep in touch with their loved ones back home and could afford to do so. Uh, letter writing became a a two-way process. So it wasn't that I was just writing a letter to update you. It was I was writing a letter and I'm expecting a response back because you can. Mm -hmm. It's it's cheap. It's affordable. You can do it. And it's uh, relatively quick compared to the late 1700s when letters took 40 days versus the Civil War. You could get a a letter in around 10 days. Uh, So writing letters was a, a vital component of what it meant to be a soldier at the time. And so delivery was really essential. And what you had at this moment as well, interestingly, was the mail service then delivering it to people's homes uh, instead of people having to go to the post office to pick up their mail. Oh, that's interesting. Home delivery was not, didn't always exist. No, people okay. used to have to go to the post office to pick up letters. Uh, and so you didn't know if a letter arrived for you. And uh, one postal worker was arriving to work and saw a very long line of wives of soldiers waiting to get inside the post office to see if a letter had been delivered. It was this extraordinary line of these anxious people waiting to hear from Mm. their spouses. Mm. Uh, And he said, you know, this is traumatic. We need to find a new way to do this. And he decided to Mm. institute home deliveries to these people. And since then, it's been a, a part of our daily lives. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that people are always like, uh, things have sped up so much in the modern world. People are so bad at waiting now. I wonder, you know, when you think about your own work on this project and, and looking back yourself, do you think that's true? That was one of the initial inquiries that got me into this research. I was curious about how our technologies have sped up our connections uh, with each other and has that ultimately shaped what it means to to live and experience time. My assumption was that with modern technologies and mobile phones, that the pace of life has accelerated to such a degree that it would be remarkable. So I went into the research with that assumption, and I ended up being uh, proven wrong over and over again. You see see people throughout history talking about the acceleration of life and culture, uh, that life is speeding up. You can trace this back uh, to definitely to the 19th century when things sped up with telegraphs and the pneumatic tube mailing system that allowed people to connect at a pace that was really unprecedented. But you can trace this back all the way to uh, the Roman Empire. You have Seneca who is looking at his desk and it's cluttered with paper. All of a sudden there's this new rise of documents and the importance of documents hmm. and this new bureaucracy that arises with the Roman Empire's new way of doing things, which meant you had to keep track of all these documents. And he's looking around. He's like, I can't keep up with this. You know, mm. it's creating a busyness of mind that that is disrupting me. I, I can no longer rest because of the acceleration of culture. Uh, so we see as technologies 
have increased the pace of life, uh, it's been a common sentiment uh, throughout history that that we feel the pull of acceleration because of the ways technologies are increasing the speed between connections and also just in general increasing the speed of life uh, that that we feel. That's so interesting that people were like during the Roman Empire, like things have really changed. You know, things are really speeding up. And I wonder like how much that's technology, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. to some degree, Yes, things are always changing and, you know, a human life is can be long and you can be alive for things to really change. Like maybe there were no telephones when you were a kid, but then you grow up and you're and you live in a time when there are telephones and that really changes things. But I also wonder how much of it is like the human brain uh, and and like a sort of maybe playing a trick on ourselves and thinking Mm -hmm. that like, oh, you know, in the past things were right. so different when like our memory of the past isn't perfect plus we were kids and you know maybe we don't know what we're talking about right as we encounter a technology our brains definitely adapt to it uh, and this is true as well how we encounter different wait times uh, we set expectations we develop a certain uh, expectation and, and context for what it means to encounter this technology, encounter this moment in, in uh, our lives. And that shifts as the technology shifts and as the context shifts. So uh, I think part of it is a cognitive process uh, that that our brains are adapting continually to wait times. Um, I, you can look at the internet as a very basic example of this. If you load a browser and try to load a movie right now, uh, the amount of time it takes before we get a little irritated with that buffering icon <laughs> spinning a little too long yeah. is very different from maybe the early 2000s or late 90s totally. when we're trying to load a picture. Yes. Um, so we set those expectations. We're willing to wait based on what we assume the technology can do. And we make those assumptions uh, based on our exper- our human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we are constantly shifting with relation to how the technologies are moving and, and how we encounter them. So definitely part of it is a cognitive thing. I would say also that part of it is a cultural thing as well. I think we can't isolate technology apart from the ways it is taken up by a particular society. So in, in my life, just watching the rise of email and, mm-hmm. and my inbox is just terrible. I'm awful at email. Um, and part of it is, you know, for me, the the ways that work has shifted and the expectations of availability based on something like email or your mobile phone and, mm-hmm. and workers being able to be contacted by uh, their their work and be available at all times. Uh, so part of it is the technology. Part of it is then how it's taken up by that society, how it's used by the society, which shifts our sense of busyness and, and how we are expected to use our time uh, in a given age. We've been talking a lot about inventions that allowed us to get information to people more quickly. Um, And one that I barely, barely knew about it, I I saw it in a museum once, um, was pneumatic tubes, which by the late 1800s, I didn't realize, were in places like New York and in Philly and in Chicago. Do you want to talk about what pneumatic tubes are and um, what they did uh, for wait times for messages? So these started in Europe and were very popular in cities around Europe where you had these tubes running underground in major cities uh, and postal workers would put letters and small packages in these canisters, these brass canisters that would then get pushed around the city by compressed air to a different postal station. Uh, And those were instituted here in the late 1890s in five cities in the United States 
And these were introduced alongside the dominant mail delivery system of the time, which was a horse and wagon. So all of a sudden you had these tubes pushing these canisters of mail around a city at 30 miles an hour under city streets. People were getting letters within the hour. It ran all day long. And people could instant message each other. They could drop a note <laughs> into the pneumatic tubes. It'd get there in an hour, and the person would respond within an hour. You could coordinate with your partners uh, or your employees all day long with the pneumatic tubes. And so people felt that they were living in the future, yeah. that instant communication was finally available to us. And I think our own enchantment with the instant and instantaneous culture and communication, the seeds of that were really planted back with the pneumatic tube system when the everyday person was able able to send a message and have it uh, seemingly instantly delivered to its recipient. Um, So these ran for a very long time. If you talk to anybody who lived in New York in the 1950s, they might remember getting letters through pneumatic tubes. And, you know, they they still function in places like banks or hospitals today. Uh, But in terms of mail delivery, they were discontinued in the United States in the 1950s. That's an incredible thing, the notion that, like, a letter could go across Chicago in an hour. I mean, if you think about email, if I email you and you email me back in an hour, that's pretty good. Or if you, you know, (laughs) within the hour you read my email, that's pretty fast. Like, that is is not that different from the world that we live in now. And yet we think, like, how advanced we are. But that this was going on in the 1890s is incredible to me. Yeah, it really ushered in this this modern culture of instantaneous communication, of of being able to keep in touch with people at a pace that was really unprecedented. Uh, so you had snowstorms, or in Manhattan, you had traffic. You know, as the automobile was introduced, hmm. mail cars just took forever to crawl through uh, the city streets, and the pneumatic tubes weren't affected by any of that. So it was an infrastructure that allowed messages to be sent and received Uh, regardless of what the conditions were uh, above ground on on the city streets of Manhattan. Uh, So if you think about uh, a place like New York City, when these were introduced in the 1890s, all the way through the 1950s, you have the introduction of cars, of planes, you have two world wars, you have a massive ballooning population uh, that quintupled over that time. So it's a massively different space across all of those eras. And then year after year, the pneumatic tube delivers a message at the exact same rate that it did in the 1890s. It's a very similar pace all the way across, regardless of how cramped the city gets and how crowded those streets get uh, with cars, packed with cars. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jason Farman, the author of Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. Um you know, you, you cite a study that people under 34 uh, check their phones something like an average of 150 times a day. Um, so in some ways, I feel like in the modern world, uh, the art of getting back to people is less about do you know what they told you? Because you do, because you are checking all the time. Um, and it has a lot more to do with how long you want to keep them waiting, like what the message is. In there, the weight itself is a message. Uh, Did you find that when you were like talking to different people about weighting in today's society? That was one of the things that was um, a massive realization to me was seeing how wait times themselves were meaningful and interpreted. So as we text people, you know, we're sending words or images or videos to each other, but that 
delay, that wait time, how long does it take you to respond to that person is content in and of itself. It's something we interpret. Um, so it's not just the words. It's a little bit like nonverbal communication. As you're talking to somebody, you see a facial gesture that maybe you said something that they don't approve of. And you, right. they don't have to say a word. Right. Uh, it's just their facial expression lets you know you said something wrong. The same exact kind of nonverbal communication applies to time. So if you text somebody something perhaps um, intimately important to you, uh, you're being vulnerable with them, and then they don't respond, there's this time lag. You interpret that. You begin right. to question yourself. Did I say something wrong? Did this person interpret it in a negative kind of way? Uh, and you see that in romantic relationships, especially today, where predominantly people are finding love, romance, and sex using apps, and they begin these relationships by messaging each other. Uh, so messages are a central feature of romance today, and time becomes a really important component of that. How quickly did this person respond to me? Too quickly? Uh, am I responding too quickly? Should I wait a day? Uh, there are right. all, the, all of these norms that are built into messaging and courting and romance and love that uh, that are shaped around time and how we interpret time. Hmm. Meanwhile, on the other side of this, you talk about like Amazon and Google doing these studies of how fast it takes a page to load. And we are talking fractions of a second here because th these pages don't take very long to load. And finding both of them at different times in their history that if people have to wait another fraction of a second for something to happen they're like this this is like this isn't worth it forget this like i'm waiting another right. tenth of a second no way that to me was one of the fascinating aspects of that research that that emerged that for amazon if we are if customers are on average forced to wait about a tenth of a second on their site they could lose up to 1% of their revenue and you're just saying uh, like a tenth of a second that's nothing it's just it's, nothing. it's actually not even something you can experience on an embodied level uh, the tenth of a second uh, is about the time it takes for a sensation to go from a nerve ending to your brain Okay. Um, so it's actually not on the scale of like the human sensorium. We can't even like physically encounter or experience in a cognitive kind of way um, a tenth of a second. But it's enough to where it affects us. Uh, there is some kind of embodied and, and cognitive relationship to the site that affects us. We can't put words to it in a moment. You can't be. You can't say to yourself that was a really long tenth of a second. You know, I'm going to move on. Instead, uh, it's just something that's an embodied relationship to how we experience time with technology. Our brain shapes around it, and we develop expectations around it. And if it doesn't meet those expectations, we move on, unless something calls us back. Have we reached a point of just, like, impatience that you think is bad and unhealthy? Do you think we should think differently about waiting? I think we should think differently about waiting. I don't know that we are more impatient people than people in the past necessarily. I think I see that throughout history, that we've been impatient. Uh, we want our time to be used well. Uh, but I think that we are trying to eliminate waiting in such a way that I find troubling. I 
question what will happen if waiting is removed from our lives, uh, if we do fill every second of the day with something, which in my own life, as I started writing this book, I would say was very true. In my own life, waiting in line, waiting in general, I would take out my phone and occupy myself in some capacity. Waiting was not something I embraced. It was something that had to be sort of tactically approached uh, and and worked around. Um, and then I began to think about the creative capacities that are lost with waiting uh, as waiting gets eliminated from our lives. We have what's called the default network in our brain that activates when we're daydreaming. And if we're not bored, if we're not daydreaming, we're missing out on a really key part of the creative mind uh, that can unlock answers and new innovative solutions only when we're waiting, only mm. when we're bored and daydreaming mm. can some of those answers just click. Um, and I think people can identify with that. If you have those epiphanies in the shower or while you're driving and just dazing out, those moments are activated because of wait yeah. times. So I think creativity and innovation and our own health, in a sense, are at jeopardy if we're pulling out the phone every single time we have to wait or if we don't just pause and embrace waiting as an opportunity rather than a barrier. Jason Farman is a media studies scholar at the University of Maryland. He writes about waiting in Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about the history of pneumatic tubes and Really, why wouldn't you? We've got an article and pictures of them from The Atlantic. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Wen Lei and engineer Bill Piacitelli. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.